um, are going to jump in to the Word this morning. So that's good. Pastor Mike and Jan are celebrating Jan's dad's 90th birthday with family. Uh, but don't worry, he loaned me a bag of object lessons. Uh, and Richard has the, uh, Pastor Richard has the privilege of um, getting to support his, uh, one of his sons who is preaching in Fresno um, at their church. So um, you're stuck with me, uh, get used to it. And uh, just to give you um, an idea, I, we just spent, yes, we just spent, our family just spent a week at family camp. We just got back yesterday at Mount Hermon up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, and for those of you who don't know Mount Hermon, uh, it is the place that my kids like more than Disneyland. I kid you not. If they have a choice, we haven't, and uh, they have, by their choice, chosen to continue to go to Mount Hermon instead of Disneyland, because we can't go on every vacation all the time. But that's where we go as a family. And uh, just to give you, um, there's uh, my parents in the middle. Um, uh, my dad's 81. My mom's 76. There's our seven um, of their 10 grandchildren, um, and we go with my sister's family and my parents, and it's, it's a great way to grow in God and grow together as a family with Jesus. Um, and just, uh, just amazing things, learning amazing things about one another and about Him. Uh, there you can see uh, my daughter is a beast at rock climbing. I mean, uh, she, uh, as a, an eight-year-old, it's like it's new things, new things that we can, we can try. So she made it up every single, um, she rang every bell, even the adult climbing wall bells, um, and she's eight. So that's an amazing feat. You can see her there on the left. That's actually the one that inclines out. So you're climbing like this up and around the bend. Uh, and the one over there on the, the right is the indoor, but uh, super proud of my kids. There's Aaron hanging off a platform 125 feet over the forest, um, doing his first zip lining tour, uh, which is fantastic. And if you wonder, there are no pictures of Joshua. Uh, he declared war on pictures, uh, and he's five. So none of you know what I'm talking about. So we actually didn't come home with any pictures of him this uh, week. Uh, we're going to take, um, this is part one of two uh, of a series that we're just going to kind of launch off from Pastor Mike's message last week. Um, he gave a great, great message last week on the importance of keeping a, a soft heart. Thank you for those uh, who were not sleeping last week and listening. Um, and some of the dangers of a hard heart. And he really unpacked um, a passage or a story from Scripture where Jesus... Um, after, this is not feeding the 5,000, but there was a second story where he multiplied some loaves of bread and fed 4,000 people with his disciples. It says they worked together, um, and Jesus blessed it, and they all, um, 4,000 people were fed. And then a funny little passage, it says, literally the day after, these same disciples began a discussion about being hungry with no bread. Have any of you been there before? A mountaintop experience. 24 hours later, we have no bread. And I don't really think that the disciples were spiritually schizophrenic. I'm sorry, I, I probably shouldn't use that word. They're not spiritually disconnected so much that they forgot 
what Jesus had did the day before. Um, but something happened in 24 hours, and they were actually just overcome with fear and anxiety again. Um, and Jesus uh, passionately contended with them, compassionately contended with them about the state of their heart. And really summarizing the characteristics of a hard heart, you know, he says, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. Um, and really they have, um, he identified the fact that they, they really had the inability to see in the spiritual realm. They had the inability to understand spiritual things, the inability to hear what the Spirit is saying, the inability to remember spiritual truths, the inability to give or receive love from God because their hearts had grown hard. Has your heart ever grown hard in 24 hours? You know, our hearts don't grow hard because of one thing or one response. Our hearts grow hard because of hundreds and thousands of thoughts that we have, minute by minute and hour by hour. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear the gospel every day. Having a renewed heart and a soft heart is not a one-time deal. It's an everyday deal. And Jesus was contending with them, not just that time, but even at other times. Because what does a hard heart feel like? Pastor Mike talked about and uh, shared some stories about the nation of Israel and their wandering in the wilderness and why they had to spend so long in the wilderness before getting into their promised land, uh, mostly because of their attitudes and their hardness of heart. Not because they didn't see what God had did, not because they didn't bless the Lord for getting them out of Egypt, not because they didn't have an encounter, but because as they walked from Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday, the hundreds of thoughts that they had started to bring hardness to their hearts. And Jesus really, we see, really regularly contended with people over the state of their heart. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, um, after preaching the kind of the Beatitudes sermon, which that's what we call, but it was a public sermon about, a, 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 you know, attitudes that we should have where, that were, um, that, where he said, you know, blessed are those who... Um, and then afterwards, after this public message, he pulls his disciples aside, um, and I, I'm gonna, he goes through with a set of remarkable contrasts with his disciples. Um, and I'm going to use my uh, paraphrase translation. He, he says, you have heard it said that murder is wrong, but I tell you anyone who has contempt or condescension in their heart for a brother or sister is in danger of hell's fire. You have heard it said that bringing offerings to the altar is what keeps you right with God. But I tell you, if you have an unsettled offense with a brother or sister, go and be reconciled first, or your unsettled offense may get you thrown in hell's prison. You have heard it said that committing adultery is wrong. But I tell you that fantasizing in your heart about someone other than your spouse is itself adultery. 
So it would be better for you to suffer the pain of that piece of you dying which lusts than for you to end up in hell's lake of despair. And it goes on and on. He gives several more. Does this bother anyone? I mean, really, does it bother, does that make you uncomfortable in your seat? It makes me horribly uncomfortable. Because we realize that our hearts are completely naked to God. You have no secrets before him. And it really freaked out the disciples. I mean, they, they came to him and, and, and at one point they said, you know, Jesus, is, is anyone going to be saved? Because when you talk about holiness or godliness as behaviors, as things that we do, well, I can say, well, I've never murdered somebody. Well, I've never committed adultery. Well, I you know, have gone and reconciled with those that I, I know I should. I've done the outward signs of things. I've got my act sort of together. But there's no one in this room, me included, if we were honest, that probably goes a whole day without having a thought or a feeling that runs contrary to the heart of the Father. And Jesus exposes that not as a way of being harsh. When I first started reading this, I kind of reacted like the disciples early in my faith. Like, this is so harsh. I mean, he's talking about if I feel condescension towards someone, I'm in danger of hell's fire. I mean, that really is harsh, harsh language. But what he's doing is he's illuminating his mission. He's illuminating our need for him. Because there are people, many of us can clean up our act, but none of us apart from him can clean up what's inside. You know, there were two kinds of healing in my life. Um, one when I surrendered my life to Christ at age 20, I had a drug problem. Um, I was addicted to tobacco, cigarettes, and I was smoking a lot of weed. Um, I spent most of my life high. And in a moment, when I surrendered my life to Christ, I, I, I never felt withdrawals from any drug. It was, it was a healing. Like, I knew, I can still remember what it felt like. Like, I had a half-smoked pack of cigarettes and a dime bag of weed and a pocket bong in the, in the glove compartment of my car that just went unsmoked. I kept waiting for the cravings to happen, and they never happened. And in two weeks, I threw it all on the street, burned it up, and I was praising God. Because it, and he, he, visits us. We have to know him as deliverer. I want to let you know that lust was a different story for me. I was first exposed to pornography at age 12, accidentally. Maybe I was 11. Um, friend and I stumbled upon it. 
uh, in the creek bed from a homeless guy that had left a bunch of stuff out. Um, and, you know, once you're exposed to that, it's like these hooks in your heart. Like you, even before we'd even thought about things like that, hooks get in. Um, and, uh, you know, luckily after I, um, the Lord uh, brought an accountability partner, a friend to me, um, and we, uh, we walked out over a period of about three years um, where we got the outward activities, the problems with our behavior under control. And we were walking in a real measure of victory and still walking in that victory today. But once we had cleaned up our act, that wasn't the end of the battle. Because seven years later, I still remember in December of 2010, I'm holding my five-pound daughter. She's about three months old. I'm rocking her to sleep late at night. And I'm looking at her, and I'm realizing she does not deserve a father who has lust in his heart. She deserves a father with a pure heart. And I looked up and I thought, I just resigned myself, saying, God, if I have to fight this every day until I die, I will. And at that point, I didn't really think I was going to be free from it um, ever truly. Uh, But in my heart, I resigned myself to never giving up the fight. And I was quiet, and it was kind of this, it was a commitment to fight, but it was kind of a resignation, or I was resigned to the fight. And I remember Jesus whispering in that space to me. He said, Jeff, I did not come to clean up your act. I came to clean up your heart. It took seven years after my act was cleaned up for me to get to a point where I totally surrendered and was willing to have the Lord just work between him and me. Because we define maturity on what other people can see. We define our godliness on our behavior. And Jesus defines our godliness on our heart on what goes on inside. And that's a very, very different thing. Ezekiel prophesied about what Jesus would do. He said, and I will give you a new, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will, con- I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Friends, I want to say that's not a one-time deal. Our hearts get stony and stubborn because of the way we think about things, because we don't go to the gospel every day, because we're worried about what everything looks like. And Jesus said he came to give us a new heart. So this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to look at two attitudes that weigh heavily on the tenderness and responsiveness of our hearts. 
contentment and compassion. Contentment is a receiving attitude. Compassion is a giving attitude. But first, I want to establish some common ground on what I mean by attitudes. I don't mean, no, don't give me that attitude. That's not what I mean. Attitudes, not just in a moment. I want to say that attitudes, for the purposes of our conversation, are patterns of thinking formed over time. It's not just a moment where you have a, a content attitude or a craving attitude. It is moment by moment, little by little. It's a long series of little battles, not a single battle. Yes, little foxes spoil the vineyard. So, but attitudes are patterns of thinking formed over time. Two, oh yeah, patterns of thinking formed over time. Two, sometimes I forget I have a PowerPoint. Attitudes are chosen. They're not personality, design, or spiritual gifts. I want to say that God may have given you a vigorous intellect and the gift of discernment, but he did not make you critical and condescending of others. God may have given you an emotionally expressive personality, but he did not make you a complainer. I'm just trying to highlight the difference. God creates us with personalities. I'm not going into that. He gives us spiritual gifts, and that's great. What we do with those things and how we minute by minute are surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, those become our attitudes that are formed over time. And they directly lead to whether our heart is tender or stony. And I say attitudes, as I alluded, are formed from consistency more than intensity. At Agape, we really don't have an intensity problem. We go for God. We praise Him with our whole hearts. We celebrate mountaintop experiences. We give praise about testimonies. I mean... We cry together. I mean, this is not a stoic place. It's a, an alive place. And we give God praise for that. But the hardest thing for me has been to develop consistency. And it might be for you. Moment-by-moment moment reactions can be like cement or Croyle. Any car guys in the house? When we crave things that aren't ours, when we're dissatisfied with where the Lord has us, we can think hundreds of those thoughts in a day, and each one is cement, rubber cement on our hearts, making it hard, stubborn, stony, When we look and we take stock, and we become content in him, it's like shooting croil onto our hearts, the oil of his presence that makes our hearts soft. You know, croil is the creeps. I mean, you can spray croil on, on a, the most rusted, hardened, nut and bolt combination, and the oil just goes, and it just disappears right into the cracks. I mean, it can go and penetrate anything. It can dissolve adhesives. It can break down rust. Um, it can dislodge 
like grease and sand that's been impacted. Um, it is amazing stuff. And yeah. But you don't keep your heart soft again. You can't spray enough croil on your heart on Sunday to last till next Sunday. It takes a little psh, 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 many times a day, all the time. Like we have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. So this week, we're going to take a look at probably one of the most... Uh, the most, I would say, abused scripture in one of them in human history. Uh, this is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. To give you a little background, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who is a young leader um, who also struggles at being timid. And he's, he's being left as a pastor of a young church that Paul had helped to start with some of the other apostles. Um, and the, the young church is filled with people that uh, some were Jews that were religious leaders or had grown up in a, a religious system there and are just acclimating to really the love and the ideas of Jesus. Others were coming out of just paganism um, and, uh, you know, shedding kind of all ideas of what, you know, the culture they had been raised around and being invited into this family, into this kingdom for the first time. And there were troublemakers in their midst. I mean, and it's not just that one kind of person is a troublemaker. We are all troublemakers from time to time. Um, and Paul is giving a whole list of exhortations to Timothy of beware of this kind of thing. And this is how the gospel works in these people's lives. Um, and beware for these just insidious attitudes that can really bring division and divisiveness in the church and in the body. And he's, I mean, he's going down a laundry list of things, like a last statement, like, I'm in prison, Timothy, you got to remember this or things are going to blow up. So he comes and he writes in Timothy in this chapter, he says, these people always cause trouble. You ever felt like a troublemaker? but you probably know one. Uh, their minds are corrupt. Another way to translate that phrase in the Greece, Greek, their hearts are hardened. And they turn away from the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a means to financial gain or importance. I know none of you have ever done something that looks right or helps somebody for the importance or the feeling of importance it could offer you. That nobody in this room has ever done that. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great gain. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich craving importance and pleasure, fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people lusting after wealth, craving importance and pleasure, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves 
with many sorrows. That last phrase could be aptly translated as death by a thousand paper cuts. It is not that one day we woke up and decided, oh, I want those $10,000. Materialism is just a symptom. It's the minute by minute, day by day, our dissatisfaction with where we are masquerading with our dissatisfaction with where he has us is a death by a thousand cuts where we feel like we're in the wilderness and we've pierced ourselves with many sorrows. You know what the scripture does not say is to stop dreaming or to stop believing God for growth, new beginnings, promotion. It does not say to stay in poverty. It does not say to stay in slavery. It does not say to stay a servant. It does not say that God's plan for your life is to keep you where you are. This passage has been used to justify all manner of evil. Slave owners in the South used to take this scripture out of context to reinforce their position and their authority and their sin. This scripture has been used to reinforce the fact that we should all live in poverty and that going after any kind of promotion or blessing or uh, achievement is wrong. That's not what this scripture is saying at all. It does not say that financial planning, investing, and legacy are a waste of time. It does not say that wealth is bad. But what this scripture does say is, let me see if I can... Let's see if I can sum it up. It's about, let's see. So imagine this two 25-year-old girls talking. And one of them has a boyfriend named JT. And the other one says, now, you know, just because JT is nice to your mother doesn't mean he loves you. That we have agendas sometimes. That wherever, that many people, even believers, we still crave importance and pleasure. That our patterns of thinking become corrupt. And we allow our hearts to get hard. That we allow the opposite of contentment to creep in. It's that craving. Or to quote the Old Testament, coveting. And we crave the wrong things, or we crave the right things for the wrong reasons, or sometimes we crave the right things just at the wrong times. But really, it's rooted in this desire for importance and pleasure. It does say that what goes on in the inside of a person matters most. It does say that the sins of the heart are dangerous to us and those around us and to our fellowship. It does say that wherever you are, whatever your station, whatever your assignment, see people as God's children even when they don't act like it. It does say to be careful not to be too impressed with appearances. You know, my brother was 5'7 and about 105 pounds soaking wet. This is a picture in 1987. He was 17 and I was 7. Uh, And that plaque is this plaque. So 
He wanted to join the basketball team. He loved basketball. And he tried out for the varsity basketball team. And to all of our surprise, he made it. Because the next shortest person was six feet tall. So of the 10 people on the varsity team, they were all between six feet and six six. And then there was my brother, who was five seven. He did top out at five nine at around 22. He just kind of was a late, you know, a late uh, grower. But at five seven, he made the varsity basketball team. And uh, I remember uh, my mom asked him at the table something that kind of would like, you know, you're not going to to play very much. Um, and I remember Mark just saying, I'm just happy to be on the team. And so, you know, he didn't really see very many minutes of game time during that year. Um, you know, how, if, how many, on a basketball team, there are 10 players. You don't even know why there's 10 players. Where are my sports fans? Why are there 10 players on a basketball team? practice. There's the starting five and then the second string five. And the only way the starters get good enough to run all the plays is they have to play against other good players in practice. So there's the starters and then there's the five second stringers. And they give the starters a break, you know, to catch their breath and get some water and, you know, stretch their muscles and things. But they really are, their, their mission on the team is to make the starters as good as they possibly can be. And it's a vital role to the team, right? I, even when, I mean, and my brother was at every practice. Before he showed up early, he stayed late. Even when he got the stomach flu, he would go and sit off in the corner so that he could watch and observe the starters run their plays so he wasn't behind on where the coach wanted them to be. He was committed to the team. He was the first junior in 10 years to, uh, since the inception of the ward to receive the Newell Nelson Character Award. For a young man of distinguishing character, his extremely high standards were most observable in his interpersonal relationship and deep sense of responsibility toward the team. He came back as a senior, still didn't get much playing time, and I remember the last game of his senior year Coach put him in for the last five minutes, and the players kept passing it to him, and he, he wasn't that good of a shooter, so he kept passing it around. And then the ball kept going around and around the court because they wanted, the team desperately wanted him to make a basket. And so by the time the shot clock was running out, he actually did take two shots and missed them both. I mean, he's the second string guard. Um, so, you know, uh, he didn't actually end up making any baskets that I that I'm aware of, um, in a game. But uh, at the end of the year celebration, all nine other team members stood up and gave him a standing ovation. And he's the only person to this day that has ever won the Newell Nelson Character Award twice. And I learned a very important lesson. That guys who are really good in their character, get the hottest prom dates. <laughs> no. No, that was a senior prom. 
So uh, anyway, I, I don't know if any of you have ever dreamed that your life ambition is to be a second string guard. But the body of Christ needs second string guards as much as it needs starting guards. Paul wrote about that in his message about the body. He said there are parts that we see and parts that we don't see, but all parts are important. All members are important. And the ones that we don't see often are the most important because who contributes most deeply to the interpersonal relationships and responsibility toward the team? Do you covet a starting position somewhere? You know, these are the only two plaques on, on my dad's, in my dad's study. What kinds of plaques do you think go in our Heavenly Father's study? Scoring the most points or contribution to team spirit and play? You know, in almost 18 years, here's another one. In almost 18 years of being around prophetic ministry, I don't ever remember seeing someone give or receive a prophetic word about serving in the nursery. I remember numerous words about you will teach in front of thousands. Your songs will be sung by millions. Your books will impact a generation. All regarding highly visible ministry gifts. And it's not that these prophetic words are wrong. It's more that we only hear a fraction of what God is saying because we're putting too much cement on our hearts in that area to hear what he's saying. And we can't give what we can't receive. I imagine there's a lot of discontentment in this room over second string positions. We all have to serve second string positions in our life. We all do. I remember early on, um, I was, Gene Bacon was a, a person, a traveling uh, um, uh, teacher who uh, has a, uh, prophetic gift, and it was probably, I don't know, 16 or 17 years ago uh, at the old building, and I was going up to receive prayer, and there was a lot of people that were kind of affirming my future as a leader somewhere, um, and I think I was probably, it was probably going to my head a little bit, and I went up for prayer for direction, and Gene lays his hands on me, and he starts listening, and he's just quiet quiet, and I'm waiting. And then he says, Jeff, the Lord says you're called to be a number two guy. So learn to serve other leaders well. And then he just moved on. And I, I walked away, and in my, it was this bizarre experience. My head was like, no, that can't be. And my heart was free. Because the, the word of the Lord comes to free us. And then I was able to see, and I was able to serve in like five significant number two roles over the last 15 years. 
and be able to watch and to serve others and allow the Lord. I mean, there are things I never would have experienced and understood about God or about the kingdom or about serving and sacrificing, about humility, about submitting myself to others. There, there's so much that would have been lost. Like, and that, I'm not saying that that's a word for you, but we all need to learn to be able to serve where we are and not crave what God hasn't given us. The highlight of this passage to me is this, true godliness with contentment is itself great gain. True godliness focuses on internal matters, the real me, my heart. True godliness is a humility before the Lord about my own maturity. True godliness recognizes that my own character is still unfinished business. It's not the self-hatred or self-loathing or unworthiness. It's not that. But it's a humility before the Lord that just says, when there's problems, when there's difficulty, when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to be angry or blame somebody else, there's a hand inside that goes up, Lord, start with me. Start with me. No, no, I... I don't know what you're doing in Joe's life. Start with me. It's an earnest desire for God to start with me. You know, contentment focuses on external matters. Contentment has a big dose of eternal perspective. That yes, Jesus is alive he is my reward. He is for me. He will supply all my needs. That wherever I am, I can serve. That my sufficiency is in him. That he has me on a good path with a future and a hope. That my struggles and hurts won't have the final say. That no matter what is going on around me, he has already won the ultimate war, the ultimate victory. That the scales of justice in my life and in all of our lives have been made right there. And that my confidence and my trust in him can overrule my feelings when necessary. True godliness and contentment. True godliness and contentment keeps a right heart before the Lord. It's a humble and holy dissatisfaction with our own character, recognizing that minute by minute, we need the Holy Spirit psh, psh, to let penetrating oil of the Holy Spirit soften our hearts. And that probably even before the sun goes down, I will spill cement on my heart in one area or another. And that I need a lot more of this every day to keep my heart from getting hard. And what we have is sometimes the opposite, which is a prideful satisfaction with our own character and a selfish dissatisfaction over where we are. 
This makes us unusable to God, and it makes everywhere feel like wilderness. So in all the little moments of your day, you can spill concrete or cement on your heart, or you can allow the Holy Spirit to apply croil, penetrating oil. So in matters that test your godliness, these are the takeaways. Your, our godliness confession is start with me. And our contentment confession is, you are enough. From a place of contentment in him, we can believe and apprehend promises by faith because we can hear from the Lord. We can sense the spirit where he's moving because really our contentment is in Jesus himself. Can I get an amen? amen. Can I get an amen? Yes. So we're going to sing this song, Enough. And I invite you to stand. Maybe you need a godliness confession because you've been blaming everyone else. You've been accusing everyone else. Well, this person is a liar. Well, this person is manipulator. Well, this person is not considering me. Well, this person is doing me wrong. That may be true. But the godliness confession is start with me, Lord. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life this morning. In matters that test your contentment, maybe your confession this morning is, is that you are enough. I don't like my job. I don't know where it's going. I don't like my housing situation, my work situation. My kids are acting up around me. I don't have enough money at the end of the month. I can't make rent. Whatever, whatever it is, our contentment starts, and it's an attitude we choose that you, Jesus, are enough.